Would you pray with me? Good and gracious God, we thank you for your word. Your word that nourishes and sustains us, that comforts and that challenges us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your word. Not mine, not ours, but yours. For you alone are God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the last things usually to be done when moving into a new home is to hang the artwork. It's usually one of the last things. It's not for me. I tend to rush into this a little too hastily. Because art on the walls is what really makes a place feel like home. It feels cozy. And so I often rush to put my art up on the walls and end up with it in a spot that's not quite right and end up then moving the art to a different spot a few weeks later. And so there are just nail holes covering my walls. So I tried to be better about it this time around. I leaned my art pieces up against the wall and I would let them sit there for a couple weeks, moving them around slowly, switching one out for another as I shifted my furniture around slightly, trying to get everything just right. And then when I felt like I maybe had a good idea for it all, I had to wait until my parents came to visit so they could hold up the paintings against the wall and I could step back and tilt my head and find just the right spot on the wall for each piece. Well, it turns out there were still a lot of decisions to be made when mom and dad started holding pictures up against the wall. They would hold up a painting and I would ponder and I would shake my head. Nope, this one doesn't go here. So they'd hold up another picture. Nope, not this one either. And we would repeat this a couple times, swapping one picture out for another with me saying, not this, not this, 
not this. Until finally, I was looking at the picture that fit, yes, this. A lot of our decision-making in an attempt to get at the right thing involves first saying no to the wrong things. We try on clothes. We read the specs on power tools. We press our thumbs gently into the skin of an avocado. Not this. Not this. Not this, we say. Before we find the shirt that fits just right, and the drill that will complement our existing tool collection, and the avocado that will be perfectly ripe in two days when we have to make guacamole. Saying yes to something often means saying no to something else. And this is true of the temptation of Jesus. This is a story of obedience, a story of the perfection of Jesus. But at its heart, I think this is a story about choice. It's a story of Jesus choosing and declaring what kind of Messiah he will be, and almost as importantly then, what kind of Messiah he will not be. Can we go to the first slide here? Oh, there it is. Our story takes place immediately after Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. The Gospel of Mark makes this especially clear. After the voice from heaven declares to Jesus, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. We're told at once, immediately, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Why does that matter that this happens right after Jesus' baptism? Well, as we've just said, in his baptism, Jesus is named by the Father, my beloved Son. And this title, the Son of God, was sometimes used in the Old Testament to refer to the King. In the ancient world especially, sons were seen seen to be representatives of their fathers. And so the King, as Son of God, was thought to represent God on earth hopefully in obedience. Thus, the king had earthly power, albeit it divinely bestowed power. And Satan calls this title into question twice in the temptation narrative. If you are the son of God, he says, prove it. If you indeed have this divinely bestowed power, if you have power on earth, show us. But the thing is that Satan, the devil, knows who Jesus is. He knows that Jesus does have this power. And so the question, the real question behind his temptations, these tests, is not do you have divinely bestowed power, but rather what does this power look like? The question is not is Jesus king, but What kind of king is Jesus? The very first thing that happens after Jesus receives his baptismal identity is a test of that identity. And as Jesus answers each one of Satan's challenges, he shows Satan and shows us 
what his power, what his kingship looks like. With every declaration of, it's not this, he shows us what it is. So the first temptation. The devil tells Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. This is a rather logical place for the devil to start, given that Jesus has been without food for 40 days. He's hungry. He wants bread. He needs bread. I don't think any of us would begrudge Jesus turning the stone in front of him into a steak dinner, never mind a measly loaf of bread. But this temptation isn't really about bread or hunger. The question the devil is posing is, will Jesus exploit his power, his sonship, for his own benefit? Will he look out for himself and use his power for his gain? Will his kingship look like the selfish reign of so many of Israel's kings before? Jesus shakes his head. No, he says, it's not this. He quotes Deuteronomy. Man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus will rely on the Father for all he needs, will trust that God gives his children everything they require. Jesus' kingship looks like trust. So the devil tries again. He takes Jesus up to a high place and casts a vision before him of all the kingdoms of the world. Worship me, he says, and I will give you power and authority over all of this. Like the temptation to make food wasn't really about food, but about trust. This temptation isn't really about authority, but compromise. Because Jesus will be king of all the earth. After his resurrection, when he gives his disciples the great commission, he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the trajectory Jesus knows that he is on when he begins his ministry. So the question is not, will Jesus have authority? But how will Jesus come by that authority? Will he wait and be patient, and endure the cross, submitting himself to the Father's will? Or will he take the easy way out and seize power when it's offered to him here and now with no sacrifice required? Will he be a king of convenience? Jesus shakes his head. No, not this. And he quotes Deuteronomy again. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus will serve the Father and do the Father's will and trust that the kingdom of God will come about when and how God has ordained it, even if that ultimately means sacrifice. Satan has one more go of it. He takes Jesus up to the very highest point of the temple in Jerusalem and says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here and let the angels save you. 
And the question behind this temptation is, is Jesus invincible? Will Jesus rely on his power to protect himself from all danger, all threat, to save him even from death? One last time, Jesus shakes his head. No, he says. My kingship is not this. One last time, he quotes Deuteronomy. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus will not be a king whose power is made evident through strength and fortitude. Jesus' power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus' kingship will be upside down and backwards. He will travel towards death, not away from it. He will not seek to escape death, but to accept death and thus defeat death's power. Three times a vision of what Jesus' kingship could look like is held up to him. Three times, he says, not this. Jesus knows what his vocation, his calling, his ministry is. He knows that in his baptism, he was called into a life of vulnerability, sacrifice, submission to God, and love. Ultimately, he knows that his power is not his own, but is divinely bestowed, is a gift of the Holy Spirit, and is thus to be used in accordance with God's plans. When Jesus told the disciples that he had been given authority over heaven and earth, he gave them a commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. The last four weeks, we have been looking at four different aspects of what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus. Because each of us in our baptisms have been called into this discipleship, into ministry. We have been claimed by God and set apart by God for lives lived in his kingdom. We are filled with the same spirit that came upon Christ in his baptism. In our words of assurance this morning from Paul's letter to the Romans, we heard that this spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. In our baptism, we are declared to be children of God. The voice from heaven declares to each one of us, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And so ours, too, is the call to represent God here on earth, to live in obedience to God, to be stewards of this divine power. And so for us, too, then, is the question, the choice, what kind of disciples will we be? How will we steward this power what will it look like for us to be sons and daughters 
of the Father. The first temptation was about trust, about Jesus' willingness to rely on God and not his own power. And I wonder how you and I are confronted by this choice, by this temptation in our own lives. When we stand in need of something, is our first instinct to jump into action, to try and figure it all out ourselves, to be busy and to be productive, to try to be in control of the situation? Or is the first thing we do to pray? Do we live in frenetic energy and anxiety, just barely keeping the despair at bay? Or do our lives reveal an inner calm and peace that comes from trusting that God holds the whole world in his hands? As churches, do we jump at each new trend and respond to each new crisis and pivot around each new cultural reality in an attempt to be relevant and to keep members and to grow Or do we center our lives as a church around prayer and scripture and community, listening for the voice of God as he directs us through changing landscapes? The second temptation was about compromise and patience, about Jesus' willingness to wait for God to accomplish his plans in his time and in his way. And this one, I think, is a particularly prevalent temptation for the church. And it's tricky because this temptation sneaks into our lives disguised as something that is ultimately good. We want to see the kingdom of God on earth. We want for every tongue to confess that Jesus is Lord. We want for the whole world to know the glory of God. But in our haste to see this realized, we can end up compromising our faith. We attach ourselves to political agendas that might promise us a voice, but are not ultimately always kingdom-serving. We weaponize religion, using faith language to compel and control people to behave the way we think they ought. In a post-Christian world, we clutch at the power the church once held, as we fear and as we rightly lament an ever-secularizing society. But as we're clutching at power, are we distracted from the ways in which God is yet accomplishing his purposes, yet displaying his sovereignty? And finally, the third temptation was about vulnerability, about Jesus' willingness to go towards death, not run from it. This certainly is a challenge for us. We all desire health and happiness and security. We want to believe that we are invincible, 
And we want to believe, or maybe we deep down do believe, that if we're good enough Christians, if our faith is strong enough, if we do all the right things, that God will, of course, keep us from all harm. But the life we're called to as co-heirs of Christ, says Paul, is a sharing in his suffering. A sharing in his glory, yes. But first, a life of sacrifice, of laying down our own wants and desires for the sake of the other, of turning the other cheek instead of seeking revenge, of giving away our wealth instead of hoarding it, of seeking to understand the other instead of seeking only to be understood, of stepping into discomfort in order to bring the good news of God's presence to those shouldering heavy burdens. Every day we are faced with choices. Who will we be today? What kind of Christian will we be today? And those choices boil down, ultimately, to this question. Is Christ truly Lord over our lives? Do we seek God and God alone? Or do our other desires, our other wants, our other beliefs, do they have mastery over us? It's no accident that Jesus was tempted in a desert. Wildernesses, open, vast wastelands are regular places for God to show up and reveal himself to his people or to reveal something about those people to themselves. In a place free of distractions, free from all the other voices that call out to us, tempting us, clamoring for our attention and our allegiance, in this place, we are left with just ourselves. We can examine ourselves, search our heart, and ask ourselves, when faced with all the options, who will we be? What must we say no to, not this, in order to choose God and God alone? in order to make space in our lives for the spirit of fullness. Joan Sorrow is a Catholic nun and an author, and in her book, Whole Earth Meditation, she refers to our inner selves as a landscape, as an earth. She writes this, Go to the place called barren. Stand in the place called empty, and you will find God there. The Spirit of God breathes everywhere within you, just as in the beginning, filling light place and dark, green earth and dry. Thus does God renew the face of the earth. God always breaks through at your weakest point, where you least resist. God's love grows fullness upon fullness where you crumble enough to give what is most dear, your earth. And so on this first Sunday of Lent, we step into the wilderness. 
We journey with Jesus into the desert so that we may be found by God there. So we may come to know God there as we come to know ourselves, examining all the beliefs and desires and practices that live within us that take up real estate in our souls and naming the ones that are not ultimately of God, saying, not this, not this, not this, so that we make way for this, for the spirit of truth and life that names us in our baptisms, for the love of God, for the peace that comes from trusting in God and God alone, for the joy that comes from relinquishing our whole lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? And so, Lord God, lead us into the wilderness. Fill us with your spirit and strengthen us for the task of self-examination, of looking inward, our lives and hearts revealed to us by the light of your guiding and your presence. In this season of Lent, we particularly pray that you would help us to see clearly to see our sin and turn from it, to see your love and run towards it, to see the life of Jesus and emulate it. Go with us in the wilderness, God. Lead us always by your hand. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.